0: Brazil is the fifth-largest country in the world by land area. And unlike our somewhat sparsely populated neighbor to the north, which ranks second in size but 38th in population, it's also the fifth-most populous country. It's the world's ninth-largest economy and is home to one of the most important ecosystems on the planet, the Amazon rainforest. It's also one of the most racially diverse countries in the world, with the largest black population outside of Africa. America is number two. But demographic truisms are not why American newspapers broke from their relative indifference to international affairs to focus on Brazil last year, nor are they why we're talking about Brazil today. The reason American eyes were turned on Brazil last year was a national election with eerie parallels to the one we went through in 2016. It resulted in the election of Jair Bolsonaro, a man sometimes referred to as the Donald Trump of Brazil. Bolsonaro has been dubbed the Trump of the tropics because of the rhetoric and policies the two leaders share.
1: In 2014, he argued with a lawmaker and, after pushing her, yelled, I would not rape you because you're not worthy of it. In a 2011 interview with Playboy, he said he'd rather his son die in a car accident than be gay. Não tem preço. These red outcasts will be banished from our homeland. It will be a cleansing never seen in Brazilian history.
0: The comparison works in some ways, but not in others as my guests on this episode, Michael Brooks of The Michael Brooks Show, and Leandro DeMori, a journalist for The Intercept Brazil, will discuss in a bit. But what is absolutely true is that ultranationalism and the anti-democratic influence of oligarchy are far from just American phenomena.
2: Across the globe, the movement toward oligarchy runs parallel to the growth of authoritarian regimes, like Putin in Russia, Xi in China, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, Herr Bolsonaro in Brazil, and Viktor Orban in Hungary, among others. These leaders meld corporatist economics with xenophobia and authoritarianism. They redirect popular anger about inequality and declining economic conditions into violent rage against minorities whether they are immigrants, racial minorities, religious minorities, or the LGBT community. And to suppress the set, they are cracking down on democracy and human rights.
0: Global fascism has been on the rise. And the next president of the United States needs to have a political strategy for how to withstand it and an ideology which supports a global movement to fight back. This is an episode about Brazil, but it's also a story about a rising tide of right-wing populism across the world, from Russia to Brazil, India to Poland, the Philippines, to right here in the United States of America. And it's a story about how Bernie Sanders is unique among 2020 candidates and having a plan to defeat it. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. Like so many stories about the rise of right-wing extremists, the story of Bolsonaro is the story of political corruption. And it's the story of how he took advantage of a corrupt state and the media to marginalize his likely opponent, Lula da Silva. Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva was a two-term president of Brazil who represented the country's more progressive Labour Party. Lula enjoyed sky-high approval ratings among the people of Brazil. Why? Well, he backed ambitious progressive programs that pulled millions of Brazilians out of poverty, Michael Brooks explains.
1: You had a party running Brazil, from basically from 2003 to 2016 called the Workers' Party. And the primary leader of the Workers' Party is a guy named Lula da Silva, who I talk quite a bit about on my show. And I talk about him a lot for a couple of reasons. One, because he lifted between 20 and 40 million people out of poverty, which is an incredible accomplishment in the time that he governed Brazil. He also is somebody that as a communicator, and I think part of it has to do with just an incredible charisma, but also really coming from this incredibly inspiring background. I mean, he grew up illiterate in deep poverty. He lost a finger as a young metal worker. He was a shine boy and he worked and didn't uh, learn to read and write till later on and worked his way up first as a labor union leader, which was the main sort of force behind getting rid of the Brazilian military dictatorship in the 80s. And then on his fourth try, I believe, becoming president in 2003 and then being this incredible global success.
0: You mentioned that Lula had pulled 20 to 40 million people out of poverty. Can you talk just a little bit about how that was accomplished?
1: So he has one program called Balsa Familia, which was a really, at that time, a very significant global accomplishment. It was basically just like it was actually a form of the only condition was children getting immunizations and going to school and then families just got cash transfers. That was one significant program. And then he just, he radically increased food access for families and schools and things like that. Those were key ways. And then he also, you know, more broadly, he was an ally of labor unions. He pushed through wage increases. He expanded college access in a really radical way. They went on a big building of college construction spree, and there was also a lot of corresponding efforts to equalize who was going to college in terms of, you know, people's economic and racial backgrounds in Brazil.
0: Meanwhile, while Lula was enjoying extreme popularity, Bolsonaro had been nursing a rather unremarkable career. Unremarkable, except for the extent to which he had a history of racist and bigoted statements about women and members of the LGBT community.
3: He's a professional politician, for 13 years being a congressman in Brazil. And he praises military dictatorship in Brazil that we have had in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. So he's old politics. He's uh, not new. He's not brand fashion new. He's not post-politic. just the old politicians that we have in Brazil that for so many times in a new country with democratic waves, we hoped that this kind of politician will disappear. And unfortunately, now we said they are not disappeared. And unfortunately, now we say they won the elections. Basically, Bolsonaro says what he wants. He's just like Trump in that way.
0: That was Leandro Mori a reporter for The Intercept Brazil, an outlet which has been an important independent news source reporting on Brazilian politics. In
3: 2015, 2016, Bolsonaro started to travel around the country to talk to people. He's just like a a sponge that absorbs all the properties that people want to know and want to say and can't because, you know, it's racist or it's misogynist. And Bolsonaro he has no problems to to say all that stuff. and he he's just like as a big microphone of Brazilian spirit is saying things that you can never imagine that someone in two thousand and eighteen can say. And he says, he's he says that all the phrases, racist and misogynist against poor people against indigenous people this is the parallel between bolsonaro and trump they are just like people they say we are authentic people we are real people we can say what we want and this is what the people in brazil wanna hear this is what the people in united states wanna hear this is the parallel this is the playbook you can see united states and you can see the same thing the same things rolling today in brazil
0: so is it just the bigotry standing in as a proxy for authenticity? Or is there something else? Does Bolsonaro also play with that kind of um, right-wing populism that we've seen in the United States and some other countries where there are these kind of promises about us having a movement that uplifts forgotten people, marginalized people, things like that? Yeah, yeah, the same thing.
3: The, uh, Bolsonaro is trying to recover the old and good Brazilians as the same stuff that, that Trump did in the United States, I don't know, with the coal miners or, you know, the old and good United States. You remember that time that we were good and the, the people loved us? OK, let's try to recover that. It's, it's the same. It's the same discourse that we can hear in Brazil today with Bolsonaro.
0: Now, in some ways, the Trump comparison isn't quite accurate. Bolsonaro was a career politician, not a so-called outsider like Trump. He was a congressman for over a decade and an establishment figure for even longer.
3: He was a congressman for 13 years, and he's selling an image, he's selling an image just like, he's just like a anti-establishment movement. And he's not anti-establishment, he is the establishment for 20 or 13 years.
0: But like Trump, Bolsonaro sells bigotry, misogyny, and intimations of violence as authenticity. Like Trump, he targets the most vulnerable in Brazilian society while romanticizing the good old days that never existed. And like Trump, he marries reactionary politics with an agenda that overwhelmingly favors the 1%. But he went a step farther than simply stoking bigoted sentiment. He benefited when his likely opponent was imprisoned. With Lula's approval rating hovering between the 70s and 80s, it was unlikely that Bolsonaro could have won with bigotry alone. Enter Operation Car Wash. Now, Operation Car Wash is a five-year corruption investigation into Brazil's economic and political elite.
3: So the Operation Car Car Wash was an operation led by the public ministry and the federal police they did something radical in Brazil, they put big fishes in jail. This is radical, we have never saw that, Uh, not just politicians, but uh, managers, directors of big, big companies in Brazil, and this led people to believe that car wash operation was just like the salvation of the country, the end of corruption,
0: Brazil is plagued by high levels of corruption, and to the public, frustrated with getting exploited by elites, the investigations were embraced as a productive, justice-driven force. And at least judged by the number of high-profile officials it put in jail, it was working.
3: The group of prosecutors is 14 prosecutors, they are in Curitiba, it's a city in the south of Brazil, and they acted with, uh, with, in partnership with federal police. So they run in five years, you can imagine, Operation Carriage has five years. They run just like, I can't remember, 50 or 60 operations. You can imagine for five years, operations new arrests, new stories. It's just like a soup opera that we are watching in Brazil for five years.
0: But Operation Car Wash was not the white knight it pretended to be. In the lead up to Brazil's 2018 election, Lula had made it clear that he planned to run for president again. And polls showed that he was favored to win. That's when he became a target for Operation Car Wash.
3: He was, at the time, the most popular politician in Brazil still. And he was, at time, if you, if you go to the, to the polls, the person that can won the elections, even in the, in the first round, fighting against Bolsonaro or against anyone. So when the prosecutors choose a small case that they said Lula has received an apartment because he, he was the man that gave some bribes, to people inside the the, the Lava Jato car watch, the car watch operation. They just accelerated the process. They put Lula in jail in the middle of this election process. And that turned Bolsonaro the favorite to win the elections.
0: The car wash prosecutors accused Lula of what Michael describes as trumped up charges.
1: In the summer and spring of 2016, he was basically rushed into prison in this incredibly quick process where basically they They said that he took a bribe of an apartment after he was president. And I'm trying to keep, there's a lot of details here. I'm trying to keep it as simple as possible. But the bottom line was, even then, was that the conviction rested on plea bargain testimony of one person who had been given a reduced sentence. There was no paperwork indicated that he'd been there. There was no, nothing to indicate that him him and his wife had visited this place other than one time to actually look at it. So... He was put in prison in this incredibly sped up process. I mean, Brazil is like a place where particularly people in the elite who have been charged with way more serious things and with a lot more evidence are still like waiting for their trials on appeal. He was put in jail, taken out of the presidential race and essentially put in solitary confinement and silenced for the duration of the campaign.
0: He's remained in solitary confinement ever since. And until recently was even prevented from speaking to the media. Meanwhile, the judge who put him there, Sergio Moro, has become minister of justice in the administration of Brazil's new far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro.
3: You saw the Operation Car Car-watch going going against all the political parties, but particularly against the PT, the Partido dos Trabalhadores, the Labor Party, and the leaders of Labour's party, and they did some, something like they projected all the corruption in Lula's figure. So today in Brazil, you can think about so many Brazilians think that in, in the meantime, if, if we get Lula in prison, we are fighting the corruption. And if Lula eventually can be released, we will see the corruption come back. So this is the philosophy behind the Car watch operation, behind the new movements of far right in Brazil, and behind Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro is a product of economical crisis, uh, huge escalation of corruption, political parties in Brazil, and is a product of uh, Operation Car watch. So. You can understand how many people in Brazil, poor people hoping searching for a hope in any part of this story, just swing to to vote to Bolsonaro. It's, it's you can understand that. People are just keeping searching for a myth, for a hero, for salvation.
0: Now, many have been skeptical of the authenticity of the charges and the motives behind them for months. But recently, Leandro and a team of intercept reporters in Brazil reported evidence which confirmed those suspicions.
1: The Intercept broke this major story basically with all of these leaked telegram text messages on the prosecution team, which has basically just validated everything that Lula's attorneys and people like me and people like Brazil Wire and other kind of independent sources have said which is that of course they were politically aiming at PT, the Workers' Party, and they themselves had questioned about the validity of the case they brought against Lula, even after they had put him in jail on this incredible, I mean, a charge that just would never pass any muster in a non-politicized court system, right? Like that would just be impossible.
0: With their most popular politician in jail, Lula's party, the Workers' Party, Chose former Sao Paulo mayor Fernando Haddad to run for president. But even behind bars, Lula still spooked the car wash investigators.
1: They were upset that the Supreme Brazilian Supreme Court was giving him the right to do an interview from prison. There's text messages of them having freakouts and also, frankly, clearly being afraid of his political appeal. In other words, like, The whole election could be turned around if he gives one interview from prison.
3: We have had access to some telegram chats and secret conversations, and we are working on the archive and inside the archive, we have all the conversations between prosecutors of car watch operation, talking to each other and trying to build a plan to avoid lula to to consider that interview to vote Sao Paulo. So it was a very, very political movement. It was not a technical movement. It's not about justice, just about politics. In the middle of elections, Lula was already arrested in a prison in Curitiba, in the in the federal police prison, and um, the Supreme Court authorized Lula to concede an interview to Folha de São Paulo, the main uh, newspaper, the most important newspaper in this country. So at time, the prosecutors, the lava jato prosecutors, as we are publishing in the Intercept Brazil in these days, they was just like terrified about Lula conceding an interview because, as they said in the secret chats, that can help to elect Fernando Haddad, that was Lula's candidate, Labor's Party candidate at the time, against Bolsonaro. So they operated secretly. They talked to another public ministry's people. They already talked to, to Supreme Court judges. And at the end, the interview was not authorizing in the middle of campaign.
0: And the media, unsurprisingly, perhaps, also played a role.
3: For so many years, media was some kind of official press of the car wash operation. I mean, for so many years, journalists, they, they got tons of journalistical scoops from car wash operation without investigating without talking to source just being feed by the persecutors so you can imagine that right now that helping of course to elect bolsonaro right because bolsonaro is a product of car wash operation too and right now with the new revelations of the intercept in brazil you can imagine that part of the mainstream media in brazil they are with us they are partners they are looking to the archives, searching for news stars and publishing news stars. But some important part of mainstream Brazilian media, including Globo, that is the main, strong and important media company in Brazil, they are even now trying to protect the car wash operation, to protect the persecutors, to protect the ex judge and Minister of Justice of Bolsonaro, Sergio Moros.
0: With Lula neutralized and incommunicado, the path was clear for Bolsonaro to win Brazil's presidency, enjoying support from outlets like the Wall Street Journal along the way. Bolsonaro's win is that much more frustrating when viewed through the lens of Lula's life record and what he means to Brazilians. Raised in deep poverty, working class, illiterate until the age of 10, Lula understood in his bones what it meant to be on the losing side of one of the world's most unequal economies. Lula spent his early years immersed in Brazil's labor movement, which was instrumental in ending the country's decades of military rule in 1985. Michael attributes part of Lula's success to his power as a communicator. He's someone who, like Bernie, talks about the economy and inequality in terms that resonate with the 99%.
1: This is somebody who speaks really viscerally in a really real way to people, which has definitely been lacking in the kind of broad center left, as it's become like, you know, kind of like, you know, a party of like professors and technocrats in a lot of ways. And that's great. We want everybody. And, you know, obviously there are those of us who uh, have no problem, you know, talking about ideas and so on. But there's also a huge amount to be emphasized for simple, clear messages, right? Like even in 2018, Brazil, like Lula, before being put in prison, they were working with a slogan of make Brazil happy again which was actually like this really elegant phrase of like why not and he'll say like in interviews he's like look i want i would juice the economy when you get it going then more normal people can go for coffee they can buy a beer they can watch soccer then that helps so and so you know he's basically giving you this like bottom-up Keynesian argument in terms that any normal person can understand and i think bernie's a great communicator in that way uh as well in terms of like just this really clear explanation that obviously tracks with people's experience and puts things in actually just very clear terms.
0: So why does this matter to us? Well, back in June, Bernie announced support for Lula, tweeting, quote, During his presidency, Lula da Silva oversaw huge reductions in poverty and remains Brazil's most popular politician. I stand with political and social leaders across the globe who are calling on Brazil's judiciary to release Lula and annul his conviction. In speaking out on behalf of Lula, Bernie stands out in the democratic field, and it's indicative of what makes his approach to foreign policy both unique and sophisticated compared to other major candidates, something even mainstream media outlets have cottoned on to after years of dismissing Bernie as a foreign policy neophyte. Michael told me that Bernie's unusual foreign policy background might account for the freshness with which he approaches the subject.
1: It's both because of, I think, a sophistication and a sensitivity about understanding the broader world systems at stake than the other candidates have, which in fact do go back, I think, to being a mayor who still thought about the world. And that is a doorway into foreign policy. There are these very limited cliches of what makes somebody a foreign policy expert, and they usually overlap with being wrong consistently <laughs> about all of the main foreign <laughs> policy issues we face. But one is, you know, you can be in the military, and one is you can have some sort of like academic think tank, State Department sort of background. And that's that's great. I'm I'm not saying, I'm saying we should add to those things. And one absolutely valid way of adding to those things is somebody who, came to politics primarily as an activist, who was applying the same metrics that he had about civil rights or poverty to the idea that the United States should not be supporting death squads in Latin America in the 1980s for a variety of reasons. And also somebody who was innovative enough and creative enough to see that he could take a very unique platform to actually forward citizen diplomacy in a time that even in the 80s with regards to the Soviet Union was incredibly important. You know, people kind of joke about even those trips to the Soviet Union, but what they they don't remember, or maybe they don't read up on, was that a, a big thing that was going on in the 80s was actually a lot of sort of NGO led citizen to citizen travel between those countries, which really was helping de-escalate what had obviously been such a destructive conflict in so many ways. So I think he comes to it in a very different way. The other answer that's just more narrow and more linear, but it's like, look, Bernie Sanders went from a rap against him that he wasn't serious on foreign policy, which I never agree with and obviously thought was totally overstated. He was right about the invasion of Iraq. He had definitely spoken clearly on some foreign policy issues, but it would have been fair to say it wasn't a primary emphasis at times in his career in Congress. That would be fair. Post-2016, he hasn't even just, you know, we're not talking about putting out memos or, you know, going and giving a speech. He is the leader in trying to stop what's happening in Yemen, which is one of the just great atrocities and horrors of the world today, something that the Trump administration is actively supporting, something that uh, Sanders has led on in a a completely unparalleled way, including in terms of pulling together what on the surface looks to be a very unlikely coalition. He's been totally clear about Iran to the point where Bernie Sanders was the only member of the United States Senate to vote against an Iran sanctions package. That's one of the most important votes you can cast. And he's voted against some of these, you know, military budgets. And um, frankly, like, that is something along with all of these other areas that I only see Sanders being increasingly able and willing to question, whether it's the reason we have a housing crisis or, you know, the reason why we have such inequality. Part of that is going to have to be We can't have budgets like this in terms of the military. We can't have a foreign policy that's led by that anymore. So I think if you look at the pathway that he has to foreign policy up through the work that he's done today, and of course, I would add the courage to be clear that a leader like Lula should not be in prison, and that in fact, we should be aligning with and supporting people like that. It stands alone. And it's also only something that we're, you know, we're going to have to back him a lot on because it goes against so many of the kind of thoughtless cliches that people are used to when we hear about, quote unquote, tough or serious on foreign policy.
0: Leandro explained that, along with other leaders around the world, Bernie's support for Lula and democratic rights really does matter in Brazil.
3: It's very important, actually, because in Brazil, so many politicians, they are with the government, allied with the government, and for other side, so many politicians on the opposition they are trying to not involve themselves in this story in some kind of way. So it's important to be to know that that Bernie and other politicians all around the world are following what we are doing and for the the liberty of, even for the liberty of the press in Brazil, it's important for for us being people like Bernie watching us and and saying, look, you must confirm your constitution, your Brazilian constitution, that we are protected right now. We are protected about our our source, about anonymity of our source. We have the rights rolled in our constitution to publish that stories, the institutions in general, in, in countries like Brazil, they are not strong enough to support the Constitution. So it's very important to be people like Bernie looking, watching us and saying, you are doing the, your job, you are journalists, and you need to be respected.
0: And Michael agreed that Bernie's support here is significant for what it shows us about Bernie, the candidate and the
1: leader. I think what Bernie's doing when he does that is he's showing you that, yes, in general, you need to have a candidate who is a courageous enough to criticize the obscene amounts of money that we spend on the military, to uh, criticize, as he has since the 80s, much to the chagrin of the New York Times, apparently, be someone who's willing to criticize U.S. interference abroad, both because it is immoral and also Generates all these other side problems as you pointed out in the beginning and so w- but what he's doing when he Speaks out for Lula is something that is also really important Look if you're just like focused on the issues that you need delivered for and you're working two different jobs like okay like don't worry about Brazil but it's very distinct that he's talking about like a form of that same solidarity and ethics that should drive policy. in the United States should be a global impetus. And that is, you know, if, if I was to just speak in general terms about the other candidates, you have a bunch of other candidates who are basically just, they're pretty much in the same thought process of the sort of traditional foreign policy consensus, which has led to so many problems. And then maybe others who have been willing to take brave stances on certain issues, but have not extended that to the idea of like a genuine partnership or solidarity with people from other countries, which I think is essential. And again, just unparalleled in terms of what he brings to the table.
0: Along with his position on Lula, Michael pointed to Bernie's leadership with regard to both Iran and Yemen as examples of just how different, even unprecedented, as Sanders administration's foreign policy would be.
1: I would look at that Iran sanctions vote. I think that that's an incredibly important vote. And and I'll just spell it out because I know the kind of obvious answer to it, which was that it was a bundle. It was both a sanctions vote against Russia and Iran. And I know that there's a lot of feelings about Russia. I have no problem with an example that, you know, that Senator Sanders talks about Putin's leadership in the context of right-wing authoritarianism. That's correct and appropriate. I think being able to critique and understand a global trend and recognize that you actually still want to, as an example, collaborate on arms control, which I would hope that all anybody running would want to do. That's a pretty important area. But I think that to sit there and take that vote and be the only person in the Democratic caucus at a time of so much heightened feeling and so much drama and intensity and recognize that and also what are frankly relatively symbolic and ineffectual sanctions relative to de-escalating with Iran when you have an administration committed to tearing up that deal. That, to me, is a clear signpost that he of his Senate colleagues was the only person that passed. And I cannot emphasize how catastrophic military engagement with Iran would be. And Bernie seems to be both able to oppose it, but also question some of the kind of mindless cliches about Iran that could get us into the conflict to begin with. And then I I would also put the work in on Yemen. I mean, it's one thing to vote the right way on that. It's quite another to lead on that in a way that, you know, takes on the Gulf states in a really tangible way. And then I would say, you know, the Lula thing matters because much more broadly, a policy for Latin America that synthesizes stopping all this horrific atrocities and inhumanity at the border with a U.S. foreign policy that instigates so much displacement and so much violence is essential. So I think he has the understanding. I think he has the track record. And I think that also, frankly, you know, where his instincts are, are also different. You know, I, I mean, he's been willing much more quickly than other candidates to say, no, the occupation is not OK, <laughs> right? And, and so to me, this is an area where not only is he not weakened, he's kind of like the slam dunk candidate in this regard.
0: Zooming out, what informs so many of Bernie's foreign policy positions is an understanding, first, that just as the forces fighting progressive change in this country are not hindered by borders, so too must our movement have an international scope. And second, that there's a link between the growth in transnational oligarchy and the rise of right-wing authoritarian governments.
1: It gives you a clear ability to, to disaggregate, right? Like, in other words, if the right wing populists who are not, in fact, almost never are they actually populists, look at Trump or Bolsonaro, these are pure 1% agendas. But they get to play to people's bigotry and xenophobia. They get to pretend that they care about people's real needs, whether or not it's safe neighborhoods or economics or whatever. And then if the only response is either a really technocratic one that doesn't speak to people in a visceral way, and that's why some of this stuff is really just, again, clarity of communication, but maybe, and again, I don't even necessarily know either. I actually think that there's some people in in center-left and, and the Democratic Party who— They sort of have the brands that they fight against right wing populism when it comes to things like xenophobia. But when it comes to the actual record, I don't know how true that is. But what you do when you, when you have a left argument is one, particularly in the United States is you and, and elsewhere, you definitely can activate, activate and mobilize the, you know, cross boundary working class coalition. That's real. It's there. And it's also people that regardless of how you win a campaign, literally need to be delivered for. And then you also call the bluff on the other side, right? You say, look, you're not actually doing this. I actually do have a plan. I will actually confront Amazon. You can have a little Twitter argument with Jeff Bezos and do this, you know, whatever nonsense. But we're going to actually take that company on and we're going to change people's lives as a result of it. And then I think, you know, in terms of voters, then they have a really clear choice, right? And I think you will get, I don't know how large a group, but I think it's a geographically significantly placed group of people who fell into the Trump thing, who will come back. And then frankly, it also clarifies the boundaries on everything else, right? Because if somebody, it's like, look, let's be really clear what the choice is. And if you're picking a Trump over a Sanders, then there's no hiding room for what that vote is really about. And if that's what the vote is really about, then that's obviously, we're just going to have to win that battle. There's the same dynamic in Brazil, right? There's clearly a chunk of people that would have voted for Lula, but then voted for Bolsonaro. And I think that like part of what this comes down to is the credibility that people believe you're actually going to do something. And then also the just simplicity and clarity of your message. And I think that in today's world, that's ironically something that actually makes Bernie a charismatic candidate in an odd way, because it's so clear. There's so little bullshit. And so to me, because I would because, yes, there's race and class and xenophobia and gender like those are the things that Everybody knows about and are really important all of those things for understanding the electorate. But I also think there's people who are burned out, people who are freaked out about the future, people where it's just too complicated, too toxic. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to get into it. we were We were joking on my show recently as an example of some people in the electorate, like, uh, somebody uh, tweeted a response to an Ilan Omar tweet and they said something to the effect of, like, thank you, Congresswoman. Like, you and Trey Gowdy are the only people with integrity in Congress. <laughs> <You're> like, okay. <laughs> like, how do you even work with that? And to me, it's like, well, maybe what only thing that's getting through is like, Ilan Omar is super authentic. She's honest. You know, like, so I don't want to reduce politics to that, but I do think that we can't forget that as well and i think that bernie is actually carrying that flame really well i think that he's talking about who he is why he's doing this what motivates him and then in his case it's a seamless transition right it's not like oh i have this beautiful life story and then like i'll get back to you later on what i actually want to do it's i have this mission and this purpose and it correlates. I think if there was a war with Iran, it would be an absolute
2: disaster uh, for our country, for Iran, for the region, and for the world. What we are saying today is that in the midst of the worst humanitarian disaster on the planet, where 85,000 children have already starved to death, where we are fearing an imminent famine and perhaps the death of millions of people, what we are saying now is we've got to end that war going to help the people of Yemen uh, with food, with humanitarian supplies, not with more bombs. One of the differences that Joe and I have in our record is Joe voted for that war. I he helped lead the opposition to that war, which is a total disaster. In the long run, if we are ever going to be bring peace to that region, which has seen so much hatred and so much war, we are going to have to treat the Palestinian people with respect and dignity. <laughs>
0: Put it simply, this movement doesn't stop at our borders, and neither should solidarity.
1: Unfortunately, like all of these people like Thomas Friedman have sort of turned these things into cliches, but we actually do live in a very interdependent world. And even some of the projects and goals we have for ourselves in the United States towards redesigning like how society, how the economy works, as an example, for people uh, in a way that would benefit the many, not the few, which is like what the Sanders campaign is all about, will in certain ways run up against um, questions about global trade agreements, foreign policy, uh, what other countries are doing, and whether or not these things can be synchronized or not. And, you know, when you talked about this rise of right-wing populism, I think it is also important to note that, you know, right now, unfortunately, we're seeing this global rise of right-wing populism. And in the past, in the Nineties and early aughts there was a global synchronizing of third-way governments Basically, you're talking about governments like Bill Clinton's government in the United States Tony Blair's government in the UK there were also governments at that time in Brazil and uh, Sweden and Germany that identified in that way and you know, you're basically talking about traditionally center-left uh, parties or labor-oriented parties that move to the right on economics would be a way of super simplifying it, and that they had a shared global project. You know, like they were meeting in different capitals together. They were trying to coordinate um, and think through problems together, and they're kind of like shared framework. So, I totally see a world where hopefully, in addition to electing Sanders, there's a lot of really good democratically oriented left populists who are taking power and trying to deliver more broadly for their people and they're thinking together across boundaries.
0: Solidarity should be a verb. And with respect to foreign policy, as elsewhere, Bernie Sanders is a model for action. That's it for this week. Let us know what you think at Hear the Burn at berniesanders.com or send us a tweet with the hashtag #HearTheBurn. the burn if you haven't already please take a moment to rate, review or like us on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud or wherever you're listening as always transcripts will be up soon till next time